Hello, and welcome to another edition of EdChoice Chats. I'm Marty Lucan, Director of Fiscal Policy and Analysis with EdChoice. Today we'll be discussing an issue that's received a lot of attention for financial challenges that are facing state and local governments, teacher pensions. Today we're joined by Dr. Michael Podgurski, Professor of Economics at the University of Missouri. Welcome to the program. Thank you. So, Mike, you have done a lot of work on teacher pensions, and you've done a lot of work with Bob Castrell uh, from the University of Arkansas, and you guys go back quite a bit. And it's my understanding that you you actually called this the challenges from teacher pensions a while ago. So we're going to be talking about teacher pensions. There are a number of different types of pension plans that are offered to all sorts of public employees. Uh, can you talk about the you know, the different kinds, you know, and you know, how they're structured and, you know, what plans usually typically cover teachers across the U.S. or what states have been choosing to provide teachers. Sure. And uh, before I go into the taxonomy, thank you for the shout out. It is, it's, it's nice to be able to say sometimes in your life, I told you so. Um, okay, so so there's broadly uh, three types of of uh, retirement plan. Um, the first type, which is overwhelmingly what teachers are in, are called defined benefit plans, and the defined benefit plan um, provides the uh, teacher or the individual with an annuity that is a payment until they die. Uh, are they and their spouse? Um, and that the, the value of that annuity that's paid when they retire is tied in some way to their work history. Now, Social Security, for example, is an, uh, a defined benefit plan, it, but it's tied to you know 30 or 40 years of your work history and your your average earnings over that work life adjusted for inflation. But teachers are in defined benefit plans that um, provide an annuity, a similar annuity, but theirs is what are what we call final average salary, defined benefit plans. So it ties the annuity to what they were making during the high, basically the last few years before they retire. And um, a key feature of defined benefit plans is the employer then has to make sure that he puts away enough money to pay for that stream of benefits. And there's no guarantee that, you know, the teacher contributes enough over his or her work life to pay for that. So the employer has to make up the difference if they don't contribute enough. Hmm. Now, a second kind of plan it's really become much more commonplace. So these defined benefit plans, Social Security, of course, applies to Almost everyone, except some teachers in some states, um, every private sector worker and uh, most state and local workers. Um, but in the private sector, is the private sector has primarily gone over to what are called defined contribution plans, uh, and these are plans that where the employer simply contributes to a fund. Uh, retirement fund for the worker. So the employer contributes and the worker contributes and um, and a pot of money um, accumulates that the individual can draw down when they retire. 
And these travel, these type of defined contribution plans, travel under a variety of names, um, individual retirement accounts, 403Bs, uh, 401Ks, depending on the section of the tax code. But the basic idea is there's a little, there's a pot of money that you and your employer contribute to that's, that's tax advantaged for your retirement, and it travels with you. Um, it, it's your account, and if you go to a new employer, you can uh, take you take the money with you, and and so on. The first defined benefit type of plan, there is no individual pot of money. It's it's the the employer is liable for the benefit that's paid when you retire. And finally, there's a there's a plan that's kind of a hybrid between the two, and it's a, called a cash balance plan. And in these plans, um, the individual uh, contributes, and the employer contributes, and the worker contributes. And there's um, what what people call a notional pot of money. That is, the the employer maintains and invests the fund themselves but maintains separate accounts for individual workers and uh, guarantees a certain rate of return, say 4% or something, and then the individual can convert that into an annuity at retirement. Uh, in higher ed, a TIA-CREF, which is very common in private, it's ubiquitous at private, at private universities and most major uh, research universities and public universities um, is, is like a cash balance plan. So that, that was a little bit long-winded, but those are the three big flavors. Um, okay. So again, teachers are overwhelmingly in these final average salary defined benefit plan. Right. And I believe the BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, track those numbers. And I think something about like 87 or 88% of public school teachers nationwide are covered by these plans. Is is that right? Uh, yeah. And I think that the 13% is just a response error. It's <laughs> 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 <is> overwhelming. <laughs> okay. Uh, that, yeah. It's, it's, I, I couldn't, the only teachers that, uh, Public school teachers. Uh, there, there, there's some new teachers in some states have entered uh, alternate plans, and and some charter school teachers are able to uh, go into defined contribution plans. But overwhelmingly, yeah, they're in defined benefit plans. Okay, so with defined benefit plans, the benefit is essentially determined by how many years you work. Uh, it's tied to your salary somehow or some final average of your salary and some accrual factor. And that's guaranteed. It's paid for the rest of the teacher's life from the point that they retire and be and are eligible for to receive that benefit. And then defined contribution plans, um, which most I think most people are familiar with 401ks, but there are other types. That's defined by the contributions that are put in. Um, so the level of benefit isn't guaranteed. And then a cash balance is technically it's considered a defined benefit plan, but really uh, it's a mix of the two uh, kind of in between. In between. And, and so what you have different plans that have, you know, that are designed to put on risk for different groups of people. So with these different plans, who takes on the risk? 
who's benefiting from them and, you know, who's taking on different risk? Well, um, that's a complicated question. The On the surface, the defined um, benefit plan, it you know, the employer seemingly is taking on um, the risk because they're guaranteeing the benefit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the pension that the worker will collect. So it's up to the employer to make sure that there's enough money in the piggy bank to pay that. And um, and we've, <laughs> as we will get to shortly, they haven't been doing such a good job of that. Mm-hmm. Um, the And again, in the traditional story, the defined contribution plan, uh, the employer bears no risk. So the employer simply says, okay, uh, I will put, you know, 5% of your salary away into your retirement account and you'll put in 5%. And it's up to you to make the investment decisions. And, um, uh, you know, my liability is over once I put, you know, my contribution into your account. So in that situation, the uh, worker is bearing the inve- the risk associated with investment, and and of course the worker or the employee can can choose um, more risky investments or less risky investments. But mm-hmm. in any event, the the there's no guarantee um, there's no guarantee payment down the road, independent of what's in that uh, savings account. Now that said, the um, it's a little more complicated than that because the defined benefit plans, the, the, the reason employers first introduced those, um, and really lots of private sector employers used to have those, mm-hmm. um, it, it, they pioneered some of those plans, <clears throat> is that um, it, it was meant to reward um, stability or loyalty to the firm. And so the way these final average defined benefit plans work is they provide you with a very nice benefit if you stay with the firm or the employer um, basically your whole work life for, you know, if you say 25 or 30 years, these pay off very well. But but um, they're designed to punish early exits and punish mobility. And they do that very effectively, particularly the teacher plans. There's just lots of rules in the teacher plans that really punish teachers who move. Um, So, for example, a teacher who um, teaches 30 years in one state Mm -hmm. uh, will have a much more uh, uh, pension wealth, that is, a value in that pension uh, account in that stream of earnings, than a teacher who taught 10 years in one state, 10 in another, and 10 in a third, and had the same salaries and made the same pension contribution. So it it sharply punishes teacher mobility. Now, there's a variety of ways it does that, but the the easiest to understand is the annuity you collect is frozen. It's tied to your earnings at the time you leave. So if the teacher, um, you know, um, works from age, say, 22 to 32 in mm-hmm. Texas and then moves to Missouri, well, they'll be able to collect a pension. They'll be vested. They'll be able to collect a pension from Texas, but it'll be tied 
to what they earned when they were um, 32 years old in Texas, the salary they were making there. There's no adjustment for inflation or overall salary growth. <laughs> and that's, and of course, they won't be able to collect that pension for, you know, years. So, so it, it really punishes mobility. And that's why the private sector uh, phase these things out, because young, and particularly professionals, professionals move around. <clears throat> and that's, that brings us back to the risk question. <clears throat> young people, you know, you don't know. People starting careers don't know how long they're going to be in one place or with one company. The company could go out of business right. um, for family reasons. They could move to another state. Or they change their mind and they say, I don't want to be a teacher anymore. Or I want to be a teacher. I don't want to be a teacher in Illinois. I married someone and I want to move to California and be a teacher. <clears throat> so we don't know those things when we start our work life. And these defined benefit plans punish mobility harshly. Whereas the defined contribution plans are designed to be mobile. So, so on the so when we returning to the question of risk, defined benefit reduces risk for employees in some respects, in the sense of guaranteeing a return on their pension contributions, but it increases risk in other senses in that um, it punishes you if you move and, you know, life happens, as we say, sure. <laughs> the people do move for lots of reasons. Sure. And not even geographically as well, but if you're moving into a different sector, um, you know, right. from public school to a private school or vice versa, that's also a type of mobility with respect to pension plans too. And it just, you know, and this brings us to, the, I think, the, the core question is, is this, is this an efficient way to compensate teachers? Because we've seen that um, it really is final salary TV plans that we see for teachers are really an anomaly uh, in the modern workplace. You just don't see other college-educated professionals uh, in these types of plans for the most part because other professionals are mobile. Even you know, certainly private sector professionals, you, you, you just won't see any of them in these kinds of plans if you're working as an accountant or a manager or um, um, uh, you know some other type of a lawyer, they mm -hmm. they're not in these kinds of plans if they're working in private firms. But even in education, um, in higher ed, um, virtually all public excuse me private university employees, none of them are in defined benefit plans. You know, other than Social Security, they they're all in um, defined contribution plans, typically TIA craft. Okay, um, it's, college professors move around, and that's why TIAA CREF was developed to to give them a mobile retirement benefit. But it's also true even in K twelve in private schools. Their private schools don't have defined benefit pension plans. Um, they have um, uh, if they have plans, it'll they'll be like four hundred three b plans, uh, defined contribution plans. And in addition, charter schools. In most states, 
where charter schools have the choice of participating in the state plan or not, um, they usually opt out. There's one mm-hmm. exception, California, and we could talk about that later. They, they're heavily subsidized, but even that's changing. Most of the new charter schools in California are also opting out. Speaking of California, there was a report recently by a Stanford economist, Joshua Rao, for the Hoover Institution, uh, where he uh, estimated the unfunded liabilities or the pension debt for, I believe, 649 pension systems, local and state government pension systems nationwide. And I think he estimated about $1.4 trillion in unfunded liabilities based on the system zone measures. And he showed that if uh, you use what some financial economists have argued are more reasonable assumptions about things like the discount rate, for example, then that figure is much higher. Is this something that we should be concerned about? Well, yes. These are dollars that are being diverted from public school classrooms to pay down the pension debt. Um, this is a huge problem. In in general, it's a problem because almost all of these teacher these plans in which teachers participate are underfunded, which means part of the dollars per student expenditures are going to pay down these unfunded liabilities. Um, an economist at University of Arkansas estimates. Currently, um, we're spending about $10,000 per student in operating expenses, mm-hmm. and about a little over $1,200 of that is simply for pensions. And that doesn't count Social Security. This is just the pension systems, and that's doubled over the last 15 years. So these pension expenses are eating up more and more of the K-12 education dollar, and and it's going out of the classroom to pay for these um, these unfunded liabilities. Uh-huh. And part of the reason these have developed, um, there's, how should we say, there's the inocu- innocuous reason and maybe a, a less innocuous reason. The innocuous reason is it's risky. These pension plans, uh, you're, they're guaranteeing a benefit uh, in the future. And um, kind of ostensibly putting aside money um, to pay for that, increasingly they're putting that money into the stock market or into uh, other types of riskier investments. And sometimes uh, they make bad bets. And like in 2008, we had a big meltdown. And so they're um, they're hoping to get a return of seven or eight percent. And increasingly, it's been hard for them to do that without taking on a lot of risk. And sometimes the risks don't turn out right and they don't hit their target. And that's been a source of the increase in unfunded liabilities. In addition, though, um, politicians, it's, it's tempting for politicians to not make the payment they're supposed to make. Um, I used to think years ago when I, I um, taught economics, I'd say, well, the federal government can run a deficit, but state and local governments can't. Constitutionally, they're supposed to have balanced budgets, and that's what politicians say. Um, but in fact, what states have done 
Illinois, California, others, is they've basically borrowed from their pension plan because what they did frequently over the past couple decades is not make the contributions they needed to make to fund these future benefits. So what they were in effect doing was borrowing from the pension plans. So this is another source of the unfunded liabilities is state governments and local governments um, simply weren't didn't pay responsibly enough. It's easy to give out these benefits, and all of them, almost all of them, enhanced benefits during the 90s, but they they just weren't um, trustworthy enough, weren't reliable enough to to be uh, to to make the annual payments they needed to guarantee those. It's simply too tempting to kick the can down the road and say, well, we'll pay for that next year, uh, or we'll pay for that in a, in a few years. And um, so we have these big unfunded liabilities. Interesting. And these this is debt that has been accruing over time. How long has this been going on? Do you know? Well, if you go back to the early 90s, most of these plans uh, had, in theory, had enough money in the bank to pay for their future liabilities. But a couple of things went on. Um, The the government uh, unions and employee associations lobbied to get more generous benefits. So virtually all these plans became much more generous over time. Uh, which allowed teachers to retire earlier, for example. Uh, Teachers used to work until, you know, 62 or 65. Now it's common for teachers to retire in their, you know, mid to late 50s. Well, that's expensive. And the generosity of the pensions went up over time. In many cases, they also, teachers, again, because they're retiring so early, they they lobbied to get retiree health insurance because they're not eligible for Medicare until 65. <clears throat> so that was another source of of uh, unfunded liabilities. So so again, people these groups lobbied for for these better benefits, mm-hmm. and and then the governments simply didn't put aside enough money to guarantee those benefits in the future, and. Um, there is the source of your problem. So, so, and then you get a sharp downturn in the market, and and suddenly they have to report the shortfall, and that's what's going on here. It, there's it, uh, there was a change in reporting requirements that uh, required very clear statements of these unfunded liabilities, how much they owe, and uh, and suddenly it became clear that they were deeply underwater. And by the way, this when I say underwater, the courts have basically made it nearly impossible to cut the benefits for for retirees and even current employees. So for example, if a teacher starts becomes vested mm-hmm. uh, or is hired in um, you know, Missouri and they're guaranteed a um uh they're, they're essentially guaranteed uh, the right to participate in a pension plan that is um, uh, not only is the what they've accrued, the, the pension wealth they've accrued up till 
the current time protected, but their their right to 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 stay in a similar plan all the way to retirement, the rest of their work life is guaranteed as well. So basically, what it means is in most states, you can't really change the rules of the pension system. Um, you can only do that for new hires. You you really can't change the rules going forward for incumbent teachers. So so basically, you are stuck with this um, big cost um, going forward that you can't do anything about, um, and 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 so you've got to you know in a sense make up for your short shortfall in uh, in uh, your contributions. Now the other thing that's going on that that Ed Choice has has called attention to is the fact that. Um, in K-12 education, school districts have really um, um, hired, put a lot of people on the payroll. The payrolls have grown, grown much faster. That is the number of people employed, both as teachers, but particularly non-teachers, has grown much faster than the number of students. And uh, in, I, I can quote from a recent report of yours here, um, between 1992 and 2014, the number of students in public schools grew by 19%, but the number of staff grew by 36%, and 28% growth for teachers, 45% for all other staff. So here you've got this system that's just throwing lots of bodies on the payroll and providing them with these very expensive benefits, both health insurance and then retiree benefits. And and this has just put enormous stress on the budgets of schools because these people are accruing these future pension liabilities. The courts have said you can't touch that. And uh, there's just not, there, not enough money was put away to pay for them. So they're in an enormous bind uh, and the only place they can cut is new hires, you know, the benefits for new hires. So it's um, it's a challenge in many states. And, okay, and, uh, Chicago public schools have, mm-hmm. have a huge unfunded liability. Um, but this is also true in California, New Jersey, Connecticut, a number of other states. So these benefits are costly. Now, we want to compensate teachers and, and staff schools with, you know, good teachers to teach kids. Some argue that these defined benefit plans, uh, final average salary defined benefit plans, are a critical or necessary component to maintain a high-quality teacher workforce. Is that true? Has research been done on this question? Well, the sort of the rule number one in, in uh, providing uh, compensation or in compensation design for employees is you want to make sure the employee, if you're paying a dollar for benefits, you want to make sure the employee values that benefit at at least $1. Okay. Or you're being dumb, right? In other words, if the employee, if you're giving them a benefit, they only value at 50 cents, then they'd be, and it's costing you a dollar, then it's better to just pay them a dollar than give them the benefit that they don't really value. Uh, they value it less than cost. Well, that's really what's going on here, particularly for young teachers. Um, 
these states have developed these very expensive retirement benefit plans. But then you ask, is this what young teachers want? Do you want to pay into a plan that's, that's in a sense, put aside enough money to let you retire in your late 50s at, say, 75% of your salary? Or are you willing to have a less generous plan and you work to 65 like everyone else? Um, young teachers would rather have the money up front, right? I mean, they, they have uh, student loans to pay off, for example, or they want to save money and buy a house. And so we have this system of compensation in for teachers that uh, economists describe as backloaded. It's giving you these great benefits at the end of your career, retiree health insurance, you know, a, a, a generous pension that you can collect while you're still fairly young, but it's very expensive. And you got to pay for that by lower salaries at the beginning of your career. Now, if you ask young teachers coming out or, you know, or considering teaching as a career, is that really how you, you would rather have, you know, a dollar backloaded that way or a dollar up front in salary? Most of them would say, I'd rather have the dollar up front in salary. So, and, and again, the proof in the pri- you see it in the private sector. I mean, if this is the way employees wanted to be compensated, then you would see lawyers and engineers and, and all of these other professionals in other sectors of the economy in these kinds of plans. But they don't. They're in these mobile plans that are putting aside, you know, roughly 10% of their salaries in retirement accounts, whereas teachers are in much more expensive plans. So there are some states that you know we hear about often that are struggling with their pensions. Uh, California, Illinois, Connecticut are three examples, and they seem to be the worst funded compared to all other states. Are there other states that are struggling, and how do we fix this for state and local governments? Well, there there are other states that are uh, suffering. It's just that the uh, the poster children like uh, California, Connecticut, Illinois get a lot of attention, but even in states that uh, are supposedly in good shape, uh, they're, they're, uh, they still have a lot of unfunded liabilities. Mm-hmm. For example, the Missouri Teacher Pension Fund has a, is funded at about 80, a little over 80 percent and has about $4 billion in unfunded liabilities. And they think they're, that's so they don't get the attention of Illinois, but still they have only about 80 cents for every dollar of liabilities. And that's common in lots of states. I think that what you have to do, sort of the, the rule of thumb should be, if you're in a hole, stop digging. So what I think should be done is to close these existing plans to uh, uh, to all new employees and just, you know, isolate the problem and to, to try to deal with how you're going to pay down what you owe. And there's a variety of strategies there. But then what you want to do is put new employees into um, uh, a more modern and less expensive systems that that'll have a, a large defined contribution component. And here's where I think school choice can fit in nicely. 
Um, first of all, if you give uh, parents the choice, um, some parents will put their kids in private schools, and private schools don't have these problems. So right off the bat, if if you provide a, a voucher or a scholarship to to parents and they put their children into a private school, well, there's no you know, the, the the only liability of the government is the value of the voucher, and you don't have to worry about unfunded liabilities of private schools because there aren't any. <laughs> um, now, it's also true in charter schools. Most charter schools uh, are opting out of the state plans as well. And the second part of the solution, nearly all of the states that are deeply in trouble, um, the teachers are not in Social Security. Um, and, and what the, Illinois and California being two examples. Now, it, it, there's bipartisan agreement, basically, from a couple of government commissions that we really ought to be putting all new state and local workers, including teachers, in Social Security, because Social Security is a mobile benefit. No matter where you go in the U.S., you know, you have this safety net of the Social Security system in terms of both disability, but also retirement income. And, you know, it doesn't matter if you, you know, work in Illinois or in Texas or Missouri or wherever, and it doesn't matter what kind of job you're working in, you you have that safety net, except many state and local employees are left out and, and disproportionately teachers. Now, it, there, there are sort of complicated ways to put public employees back in. But one simple way to do it is um, is through school choice. So every um, student that goes to a private school, automatically, you're, you know, that money is supporting a teacher who's in Social Security. And similarly, charter schools, uh, if the charter school opts out of the state plan, then the teachers will automatically be in Social Security. So in California, for example, the charter um, teachers who are in a charter school that has opted out of the state plan uh, are automatically in Social Security, and then they'll get whatever additional benefit the charter school provides as well, which will typically be some kind of defined contribution of 401k or 403b plan. So, so school choice um, actually is a way to start to um, um, sort of uh, uh, circle the problem. It's kind of like an oil spill. You know how they put those uh, uh, after uh, they had the big oil spill out in the Gulf that mm-hmm. put these little balloons around uh, or, or these little uh, things to, uh, around these patches of oil to isolate them. And that's sort of what school choice can do is it can sort of uh, isolate and control the liability and prevent it from spreading further uh, while you try to deal with that. Um, charters and school choice can help um, prevent the uh, further expansion of the liabilities and, in fact, can help even contract it a bit. So have there been states that have or are currently making efforts to reform their retirement systems? Um, yes, for teachers, there there are. Um, again, most of these are uh, only applied to new teachers, although some states have did this, you know, a decade or so ago, and so you have uh, some choice. 
<clears throat> Florida, for example, new teachers can be in a defined contribution plan or a traditional pension plan. In Ohio, the same is true. Kansas recently had, had very large unfunded liabilities in school plan, and under a new reform, new teachers are in a cash balance plan. Um, <clears throat> Utah has a similar arrangement for uh, new hires. So, so a number of states have um, uh, introduced more flexible plans um, for new hires. And, and, in, and in some cases, these include teachers. I should note that in some states, in, some, in many states, teachers have their own retirement plan or public school employees have their own retirement plan. But in others, they're in consolidated state plans, like in Florida and so on. So, so all the state employees, including teachers, are in one uh, plan. Right. Okay. So if state legislators are to do anything next session in terms of you know, reforming their pension plan and trying to handle you know, these budgetary pressures, uh, what should their first step be, do you think? Well, like, as I said, I think when you're in the hole, stop digging. I think that they should, um, when they have these unfunded liabilities, I think they should close these existing plans to new employees. Now, that means the employees that are currently in, mm -hmm. they're in the plan, you're going to have to pay for it, but you're not going to grow the plan anymore. Uh, believe it or not, the pension plans and advocates argue that it actually costs more money to close these plans than it does to, to continue operating them. It's It's a a weird argument and it doesn't hold water and it defies common sense. Um, but it is made. Uh, but that's, that's the key is you just close these existing plans and put new employees into a, a less costly, portable, flexible plan. And, um, and I think that's an important first step. And as I said, I think that, uh, in, in the case of, uh, schools, I think that you can, um, through school choice, in effect, you're privatizing some of the, the uh, delivery of services. If the parents pick a private school, if they have a voucher, then you've, you know, you the, the, the uh, public liability is limited. You pay for the voucher and that's it. And charter schools uh, are also uh, tending to opt out and provide less expensive benefits. And I should also mention that one nice thing about the charter school sector is they're also showing ways you can innovate. Um, many charter schools are developing their own retirement benefit plans mm -hmm. that look a lot like, you know, private businesses uh, that employ uh, professionals, high tech firms and so on. <clears throat> they so Charters, this is one area, actually, where charter schools um, can do things that traditional public schools can't, because uh, even if a um, school district would like to do something innovative, they don't have any choice but to participate in the state plan, whereas charter schools in states where they can opt out can, um, can you know, do their own thing. And we're seeing a lot of innovation uh, on the part of charter schools that have opted out. 
Is there any new research on pensions coming out uh, in the near future, either from your department or elsewhere? Well, we um, uh, one study uh, that I've alluded to is uh, an analysis of what charter schools are doing. So uh, I collaborated with some folks at the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools to look at uh, to what extent charter schools are opting out of these state plans when that option is on the table and then what they're doing when they opt out. So we have a new report coming out on that. And uh, as I said, there's an increasing trend for the charters to opt out when they can. And they're doing uh, developing their own 401ks, 403bs, and so on. So there's a lot of innovation going on there. Um, we have um, another study that's uh, looking at um, trying to uh, many many some uh, school districts and um, uh, cities and and uh, are are concerned about their ability to recruit new teachers. There's some discussions about teacher shortages. Now, in fact, there aren't widespread teacher shortages, but in but because of the way we pay teachers, there are shortages in some fields like STEM. So many some schools find it hard to replace, say, special ed teachers or science or math teachers. It turns out these teachers are retiring or existing experienced science and math teachers or special ed teachers are retiring at relatively young ages, their late 50s. So one thing you might do within the existing framework is to offset um, some of the incentives for early retirements in these traditional plans. So these traditional final average salary defined benefit plans have these push incentives that encourage teachers to retire at young ages. So we did a recent paper uh, simulating or estimating how how you might offset that for some of your best teachers. In other words, teachers you really want to hang on to, science and math, or, you know, really, if, if there's some exceptionally good teachers, or teachers teaching in, in high-need schools, uh, science and math teachers in high-need schools. And it turns out it it can be very cost effective to do that and rather than trying to recruit new teachers and so on. If you can just get your existing high value teachers to work for two or three years more, um, it, 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 it's sort of offsetting. I, I, we call them retention bonuses, offsetting the incentives of the retirement system can actually be a relatively a less expensive way to staff those positions with high quality teachers. So that's another paper we've uh, or issue we've looked at in, in some work. And finally, we have another paper that just went into print that shows that um, uh, see one consequence of these these penalties for mobility is um, is that um, you're making labor markets less efficient. So in other words, imagine you're uh, a teacher in uh, Kansas City, Kansas, and you want to take a job in Kansas City, mm -hmm. Missouri. Well, 
you know, you could literally walk right across the street. There's a road called State Line Road. And if you're on one side of the street, you're in Kansas. And on the other side, you're in Missouri. Now, um, in most professions, it's easy to cross that line. Uh, and, and that labor markets work efficiently when workers can move around and pursue the best opportunities and employers can hire the best uh, employees. But in teacher labor markets, teacher licensing and these pension systems reduce mobility. Well, we have a paper that was just published in Economic of Education Review that shows that um, schools that are near a state line, actually the students do worse, other things equal, than schools that are further inland, which is exactly what economic theory would predict. That if your if your teacher labor market market is segmented by a state line, in other words, you can't hire teachers who are, or it's more costly to hire teachers on the other side of the line, then you're going to do worse than than uh, a school, a similar school that doesn't face those uh, types of uh, barriers or or that type of a segmented labor market. So we have a paper on that too. And it really demonstrates, um, or at least provides some evidence that these penalties that are built in, these penalties for mobility that are built into pension systems actually have effects on student achievement. Huh. Interesting. Well, um, certainly look forward to reading your forthcoming papers. Is there anything else that you would like to add before we wrap up? Um, I'll just repeat what I've said um, several times already. Um, my best advice for uh, uh, the uh, legislators and uh, education leaders is uh, the old uh, aphorism, if you're in a hole, stop digging. Sounds good. Well, thank you very much, Mike. Appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. I'd like to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more EdChoice Chats, please subscribe at the bottom. I wish you well.